So Genesis chapter 30, uh, starting at verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Jacob, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know, know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your, how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all of your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had, spot, had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the, spotted, uh, the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the, uh, the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there, so the feebler would be Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Well, you might be wondering why there's bread on the ground here. And I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to wait till the end to find out what the bread means. But sometimes in life, there's more to something than meets the eye. To illustrate that point, I have some logos for you that many of them you've probably seen before. But you might not have seen some specific features of these logos. I know, at least I haven't seen. Some of them actually kind of blew my mind. So the first one we have is the Baskin-Robbins logo. And so you see the pink and the blue there, the B and the R. But if you look closely and just separate the colors, you see a 31 in the middle. And that 31 with the pink represents the 31 flavors that you can find at Baskin-Robbins. Then you have another, the next one, the NBC logo. Now, I watched NBC for a number of years, you know, since I was a little kid, and I'd seen this logo, and I'd thought it was some kind of a fan or had no idea what this was, but it's actually a peacock. And the peacock is facing to the right to represent the idea that they would be forward thinking. 
And each of the feathers represented a different division of NBC because there were six divisions of NBC when it was originally created. The next one we have is the Falcons logo. The team is going to be in the Super Bowl uh, just uh, next week. And I had seen this one too. I had seen the Falcon, but I never realized that this was actually not only a Falcon, but also an F for the Falcon. Then the next one after that, uh, Amazon. I never noticed this. I buy stuff on Amazon personally and for the church all the time. But you see the smiley face there and the arrow. And I never really noticed it, but it starts at A and then it ends at Z. And it was meant to represent the fact that Amazon has everything from A to Z. And then the final one, the one that's kind of used in a number of design schools for people doing graphic design. And this one I didn't see coming at all. You see the FedEx and you just see, you know, purple and orange letters. There's nothing more to it. But if you look closely between the E and the X, you'll see that there's an arrow placed there. And that arrow, too, was meant to represent that they were forward-thinking in their ideas. I'd seen the FedEx logo for years and years, never noticed that arrow that was there. And now that's about all I can see when I look at that logo. Sometimes there's more to something than meets the eye. And we're looking at the story of Gen- stories in Genesis, stories of families and stories of intrigue, stories where we can kind of draw some lessons from them. But these stories are not just stories of a dysfunctional family, but they're stories about God working through a dysfunctional family. A story about how God is forming a people for himself. That he took a person in Abraham and then his son Isaac and Jacob, and how God is forming them into a nation, and his intention that he would form a nation of God worshipers who would honor God, and that because of that, all the nations around would see them and want to serve the one true God, that they would be a peculiar, distinct people. And we know that they don't live up to that ideal, and that's why Jesus has to come to the earth, and that's why we see even in the Genesis, we see glimpses of the fact that God is going to send a Redeemer, someone to save His people from their sins. So there's more to this story than meets the eye. It's not just simply a story of a family that we can draw lessons from. God is doing something through this family. And we see back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He answers into a special relationship with him. And then this covenant is reiterated to Isaac, and then it's reiterated to Jacob. It's reiterated to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verse 13. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you... In your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now remember the context of the story of Jacob. Remember Jacob steals his brother's birthright. He deceives his father, right? Just a few chapters earlier, Uh, Jacob wants his birthright, and his mother is kind of encouraging him. 
And so his father is old. He can't see very well. And so he goes into his father, and he pretends like he's Esau. He puts on a, a hairy a cloak from an animal. He makes his father's favorite stew. And he says, here I am. I'm Esau. Now give me the birthright and give me the blessing. And he does it. And then after that, we see that Esau is obviously angry at him. So angry that Esau plots to kill Jacob. And uh, Jacob's mother gets wind of that and sends Jacob away. And so he goes to live among Laban, who was his uncle. And once he gets there, he falls in love with Rachel. um, And he comes up with this deal that he would work for Laban for seven years. And in return, Laban would give him Rachel as his wife. And then remember the story that Laban is deceitful and he tricks Jacob and he gives him Leah instead of Rachel on his wedding night. And then he has to work another seven years to get Rachel's hand. And then they have a number of children and we looked at that story uh, last week how uh, they were kind of having this birthing contest to see who could have the most children. And then finally Rachel has a child and Jacob realizes that it's time to move on. It's time to leave Laban and go back to his homeland. And so he goes to Laban and he says, send me away and give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you. Send me on my way. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't give any polite pleasantries. He doesn't give any terms of respect. He's basically, give me my wives, give me my children. I've done my time here and I'm going back home. But the problem is Laban realizes something. He's a very shrewd business person. And he realizes that since Jacob has been there, his flocks have increased uh, tenfold, a number increased greatly. And he realizes that it's in some way related to the blessing of God and the fact that Jacob is there. And so he doesn't want to lose Jacob. Jacob's a valuable asset to him. And so he says, God has blessed me because of you. He says, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me. It could be translated a different way. But he says, I I know that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So name your wages, whatever it is, I want to keep you here because if you're here, then I believe God's going to bless me. Jacob says, I've done my time. It's time to go. But Laban insists, name your price. And then finally Jacob says, okay, all you got to do, just give me the sheep that are spotted or speckled or black, the goats that are speckled or spotted, and then I'll take care of your sheep and your flocks for you. Now Laban would have thought this was an awesome deal. He would get the blessing of God upon his life. He would get Jacob working for him, and he would have to pay just a very small fee. I mean, most sheep were white, most goats were black, And so the spotted and speckled among them would have been an anomaly. They would have been relatively rare. And so he would have had to give up just a small portion of his flock to get Jacob to stay there. He thinks it's a great deal because uh, one of the fees, sometimes the shepherds would provide a fee for their services. And sometimes that fee might be something like 20%. In other words, they would get 20% of the of the sheep or the goats that were born under their care. And this would have been much, much less than the kind of going shepherding rate during that time. So Laban thought it's a great deal. And not only that, he felt like he knew that Jacob couldn't trick him because there's a way of differentiating them, right? He says, your sheep will be white, pure white, 
pure black, and mine will be speckled or spotted, um, or for the sheep, black. He says there's a clear way of knowing if they're yours or if they're mine, and if I have the ones that are pure black or pure white or goats that are pure black, then you'll know that I stole them from you. Seems pretty clear cut. But there's more to this story than meets the eye. It appears that the author is engaging in some word plays. And we don't know all of this for sure, but it seems from the language that is used that he's kind of setting up a contrast. Laban would be the one who has the white flocks, the white sheep, the pure white sheep, the pure black goats. But what's interesting about Laban's name is the, word, the name Laban means white. That Laban, the white one, would have the white sheep. Jacob, similarly to the name for Jacob, uh, sounds similar to the, to the word for spotted or speckled. So Laban, the white, would have the white sheep. Jacob, the spotted or speckled one, would have the spotted and speckled sheep. It seems like there's a contrast that's going to be set up. That Laban has a number of flocks, the pure white and the black goats, and Jacob has just a few, the speckled ones. Jacob is very poor. Laban is very wealthy. The contrast is set up perfectly. But there's more than meets the eye. They come up with this agreement and then... Laban takes out the speckled and spotted sheep and the goats. We don't know exactly why he does this, but he's probably trying to be deceptive, probably trying to take even more from Jacob's share. And he puts it in charge of his sons. We see in the next chapter in 31 that Jacob says that Laban changed his terms ten times, and he keeps changing his terms trying to deceive him. But Jacob is put in charge of Laban's flocks, the sheep that are pure white, or the goats that are pure black. He's not put in charge of any that are speckled or spotted. And then what Jacob does is he takes some sticks. And again, we see what looks like a wordplay uh, when he says that he takes the poplar uh, stick. Now, the word for poplar was the word labana, which is like Laban. And then he puts streaks uh, in these sticks. And in the, in the Hebrew, it says that he put streaks of Laban in them. Streaks of white, streaks of Laban. And it says that he exposed the Laban or the white in them. Now, we don't know why he did this. It, it's kind of a mystery. Um, one thought that I had, and I, I can't substantiate this, um, but... Laban says that he learned by divination that the Lord has blessed him. And so one possibility is that Jacob is putting these sticks into the water almost to cast lots, to expose the Laban, to, to ask God, show Laban and show me who these flocks really belong to. Almost a way of saying, God, make the lines clear. Show who these flocks belong to. That's a possibility. There's also a possibility he was just a little bit superstitious, that he believed for some reason that if he put these sticks in the water, it would be the last thing that these animals saw before they conceived, and then they would come out speckled or spotted. It's certainly possible that he was caught up in this superstition. And if that was the case, sometimes people say, well, how can we believe the Bible? 
It's archaic. It's superstitious. It's unscientific. Everybody knows that if you put sticks in a, in a water trough, it's not going to change the color of the animals that are born. Everybody knows that. The Bible is wrong here. Well, the fact that the Bible describes something doesn't mean that the Bible endorses something. The fact that the Bible describes Jacob as believing this doesn't mean that the Bible teaches this. It doesn't mean that these sticks actually caused a change in the animals. Just in the next chapter, even Jacob himself acknowledges that it's God who made this change. God who did it. It didn't really have anything to do with the sticks, even if Jacob believed that it did. But the flocks are changed. They're changed and they're born speckled and spotted and dark. And we see another word play here in this passage. We see that the word for to breed, it's translated to breed in the ESV, is a Hebrew word, which uh, yakom, which means to conceive or be in heat. And it sounds similar to the word shavom, which means to be dark colored or sunburned. And what's interesting is what's happening is that as these animals are conceiving, they're becoming darker. They're becoming less Laban's and more Jacob's. That God is transforming before their very eyes the flocks that belong to Laban, and he's transforming them into Jacob. There's more to the story than meets the eye. God is increasing Jacob's numbers. He's increasing his strength. It says in the text that he only put out the sticks when the stronger ones were there, not when the weaker ones. And so his flock is increasing in numbers and his strength. And God is the one who's bringing this transformation. It's set up. The white one would have all the white and the black go- the white sheep, the black goats. Jacob, the speckled one, would have this little bit, bitty portion of the flock. But God is transforming the situation. And he's changing what belongs to Laban and giving it to Jacob. And in the process, he's forming for Jacob a separate nation, a separate identity, and he's separating him from Laban. Because the question that could have been raised at this time is, whose family really is this? Is this Laban's family or is this Jacob's family? Because Laban was the one who was calling the shots at this, at this point. He's the one who's setting the terms. And so from the surface, it looks like Laban is the one who's the patriarch of this family. But God chose to work through Jacob, and so he separates them. And he separates them for another reason. Imagine for a minute that the situation that Jacob finds himself in is a little bit different. He comes to Laban, and he falls in love with Rachel, and Laban just treats him perfectly. He says, all right, you can have my daughter. You can have her hand in marriage. And I want you to be my shepherd. And I, I tell you what, I'm going to pay you a great rate. I'm going to pay you 30% shepherding fee. That's higher than the average shepherding fee. But I'm going to give you this blessing because I, I know you, I'm related to you, and I'm just going to choose to bless you. And then Jacob becomes more and more wealthy. What do people say? And they even tried to say this in the next chapter. They say, Laban made Jacob rich. Laban made Jacob rich. It was all because of Laban. It's all because of Jacob's hard work. But the situation is completely different. Every step of the way, Laban tries to take advantage of Jacob. 
As I said in the next chapter, he says that he changed his terms ten times. He's just trying to use Jacob for his own purposes. But God is with Jacob. And God is transforming what belongs to Laban and giving it to Jacob. And then at the end of the story, we can see clearly that this wasn't the result of, Jake, or of Laban. It wasn't Laban's blessing upon Jacob. It was God who was blessing Jacob. And God gets all the glory for that. So it's an interesting story. Some interesting things that we see in this story. And as I said, there's more to this story than meets the eye. But what can we take from this story? What can we learn from this story for us thousands of years later, living in a completely different kind of culture? What can we take this for today? What can we take from this for, for today? I see three things we can take from this passage. The first thing is that no one can stop God's plan to bless his people. No one can stop God's plan to bless his people. See, when we're trying to live lives for God, we'll face a number of difficulties. And one of those difficulties is other people who will attempt to derail us. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if you're doing the right things, you're going to face persecution. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be questioned. You're going to be doubted. Sometimes it will be from non-believers. Sometimes it will be from people in the church. Sometimes it will be from people in your own family, your closest friends, your closest confidants, and they'll try to bring you down. Laban is schemed and manipulated every step of the way. He has no regard for his daughters even. He has further no regard for Jacob. And every step of the way, Laban is only thinking about Laban. And we see that he encourages Jacob to stay with him. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that Laban was tempting Jacob, but he certainly wasn't looking out for Jacob's best interests. He certainly wasn't looking for God's plan for Jacob. He's looking out for his own interests, trying to use Jacob for his own purposes. For a while, Laban's plans are working and he's getting more prosperous and Jacob is just staying the same. But God turns the tables because nothing can stop or no one can stop God's plan to bless his people. When we persevere in following after God and God's will in the face of opposition, he will bless us. He will bless us. We might not experience that blessing in this life, I can't say that everything's going to work out perfectly for us, but we will experience blessing when we follow after God, whether in this life or the life of come. Because God's plan cannot be stopped. When God chooses to bless his people, no one can stop that blessing. But sometimes we have more difficulty with our circumstances than we do with other people. So another thing that we can learn from this passage is not only can no one stop God's plan, but no thing can stop God's plan to bless his people. Sometimes we get so caught up in our circumstances and our situation, and we focus on the need that we have. We focus on our lack rather than God's sufficiency. 
We forget that we serve a matchless and limitless God who can do anything by the word of his mouth. The passage shows us that God can take something that is little or something that doesn't exist at all and make it into something great. See, a need has to precede a miracle. A need has to precede a miracle. See, if there was no storm, then Jesus wouldn't have had to calm the storm. If Lazarus hadn't died, then Jesus wouldn't have had to raise him from the dead. If Jesus was out with the 5,000 people and he had enough bread and enough loaves to give to all of them, then where would the miracle be? Where would God's sufficiency be? How would people know that God could provide for them? See, when we experience need, it's simply an opportunity for God to prove himself faithful to us, to prove himself sufficient to us. I was reminded of that this past week even. I found out that one of the churches that has supported us for a few years um, has kind of started some new endeavors, and so they're not going to be supporting us this coming year. And it wasn't an insane amount of money or anything, but I started to get worried about it. I was talking to Stephanie about it. Uh, and she reminded me that this is just an opportunity to God, for God to provide in a different way. That just like God has provided in the past, He's going to provide in the future through a different means. And a, a needs that, the needs that we have are just an opportunity for God to prove Himself faithful. To show us that He loves us. To show us that He's enough for us. God is not surprised or intimidated by our circumstances. He knows exactly what's going on. No, nothing can stop God's plan to bless His people. J.I. Packer in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, says this, We grow up into Christ by growing down into lowliness. Offloading our fantasies of omnicompetence, we start trying to be trustful, obedient, dependent, patient, and willing in our relationship to God. We give up our dreams of being greatly admired for doing wonderfully well. We begin teaching ourselves unemotionally and matter-of-factly to recognize that we are not likely ever to appear or actually be much of a success by the world's standards. We bow to events that rub our noses in the reality of our weakness, and we look to God for strength quietly to cope. It is impossible at the same time to give the impression both that I am a great Christian and that Jesus Christ is a great master. So the Christian will practice up, curling up small, as it were, so that in and through him or her, the Savior may show himself great. That is what I mean by growing downward. Packer says, so that in and through him, the Savior may show himself great. God says to Paul that my grace is perfected in your weakness. God shows himself most clearly in our weakness. He shows the world how great he is through our weakness and through our insufficiency. He shows the world that he's enough for us. And all we need to do is cry out to him. Allow him to use us in our needs and in our insufficiency. Minister Bob Russell tells a story about a father who was watching his son outside of the kitchen window. His son was playing in the sandbox and there was a big stone that was in the sandbox. 
And the father sees his son trying to lift it up and push it along, but he gets to the edge of the sandbox, and he just can't lift it over the edge of the sandbox. And so he keeps trying and trying, and eventually he gives up. He sits down, puts his head in his hands, and is just completely dejected that he can't lift up the stone. Then his father goes out, and he says to him, What's wrong, son? Can't you lift the stone out? He said, No, I can't do it. And the father says, Have you used all the strength that is available to you? He says, Yes, I have. Father says, no, you haven't. You haven't asked me to lift it out for you. See, in our needs, we have the opportunity to call out to God and for God to prove himself faithful and sufficient to us. Because nothing can stop God's plan to bless his people. No one can stop God's plan to bless his people. Nothing can stop God's plan to bless his people. But there's one other thing we need to get right if we're going to understand this passage if we're going to understand what we can learn from this passage and that's this that God has good plans to bless his people God has good plans to bless his people now we see that we read how this covenant that God made with Abraham is reiterated to Jacob but to understand exactly the covenant we need to go back a little bit to the story of Abraham and we covered this story Quite some time ago, maybe a couple of years ago, we looked at the story of Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. He promises to make him into a great nation, to give him a great land, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And then he takes part in a covenantal ceremony, an ancient covenant-making ceremony. A covenant was kind of like a contract that we have today, but it was a little bit more personal, a little bit more involved than a contract. And in this ancient covenant-making ceremony, what would often happen was these two parties would enter into this alliance, and they would take these animals, and they would cut the animals in half, put one on one side and one on the other. And as they were uh, making this ceremony, what they would do is they would kind of walk through together through these animals. And the idea of this was to say, if I should break the covenant, may I become like these animals that are torn to shreds, that are ripped apart. It was a solemn oath. It was a commitment that I'm going to be cursed. May I be cursed if I don't fulfill my word. But what's interesting in the story of Abraham and the covenant that God makes with Abraham is that Abraham is sleeping and there's only one person that walks through the animals. God walks through the animals alone. And that what that indicates is that God is the one who's going to fulfill this covenant. And God says, when, I, when it comes to the point where you don't keep the covenant, when I should be cursing you, I'm going to take that curse myself. I'm going to pay the penalty that you deserve. I'm going to keep this covenant. I'm going to keep this word. I'm going to fulfill it for you. Even when you fail, I will be strong. And then we see Jesus, before he's going to be crucified, just before he's going to be crucified, he gets up before his disciples and he takes a loaf of bread and he tears it apart. And he says, this is my body that's broken for you. It was a fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham 
That His body would be torn in pieces for His people because they had failed the covenant, because we have failed to honor God as we should. Jesus would be torn apart for us. We're going to celebrate His death for us and remember that in just a few minutes as we take communion. But then Jesus took the wine and He said, this is My blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If we go back to Exodus 20 to 24, we see that God made another covenant with Israel after they were led out of Egypt a little bit later in their history. He gives them the Ten Commandments and they say, we're going to keep these commandments. We're going to keep them. And then the blood of a sacrifice is, is kind of thrown out into the crowd on them. But we know that they don't keep that covenant that again and again they go after other gods. Again and again they fail to honor God as they should. But then here's Jesus. He says, my blood is the seal of a new covenant. A new covenant that's described in Jeremiah chapter 31 where it says that, these, that his people's sins will be forgiven. Where it's described that God's people will have a new heart that it will not just be about the law, that God's Spirit will dwell within His people so that they'll have the heart to serve Him. It's a new covenant where God dwells among His people once again. Jesus says, I am the seal. My blood is the seal of the new covenant. My blood will atone for the sins of many. We know that God has good plans for us because He gave us the gift of His Son. Because he fulfills his promises. He fulfilled the promise to Abraham that he was torn apart for his people. Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This time Joel's going to come up, the worship band, and going to lead us in a song and the elements are going to be uh, passed out. We're going to have a moment to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. Scriptures say that as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We do this to remember the sacrifice of the God who came to the earth who was torn apart for us. It was torn apart to forgive us of our sins, to bring us home to heaven so that we could have a relationship with God forever. So we're going to pass out the elements and worship, um, and then we'll partake of the elements together. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to the earth who lived a sinless life, died on the cross, experiencing the curse for us. God, we thank you that you're faithful to us, that you're good to us, that you love us even though we don't deserve it. God, we thank you that you've willed to bless your people, that all who come to you, you've given your blessing, that you've called us sons and daughters that you've given us a new hope, a home in heaven. God, I pray that we would live in light of that reality. That we would know that nothing and no one can stop your plan to bless us. God, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for all that you're going to do in and through us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.